Section 11 of Chapter 17 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 17, Section 11. First marched what was called the Royal Regiment, 1,400 strong. All but seven went beyond the fatal point. Ginkle's countenance showed that he was deeply mortified. He was consoled, however, by seeing the next regiment, which consisted of natives of Ulster, turn off to a man. There had arisen, notwithstanding the community of blood, language and religion, an antipathy between the Celts of Ulster and those of the other three provinces, nor is it improbable that the example and influence of Baldir Gordano may have had some effect on the people of the land which his forefathers had ruled. In most of the regiments there was a division of opinion, but a great majority declared for France. Henry Luttrell was one of those who turned off. He was rewarded for his desertion, and perhaps for other services, with a grant of the large estate of his elder brother Simon, who firmly adhered to the cause of James, with a pension of five hundred pounds a year from the crown, and with the abhorrence of the Roman Catholic population. After living in wealth, luxury, and infamy during a quarter of a century, Henry Luttrell was murdered while going through Dublin in his sedan chair and the Irish House of Commons declared that there was reason to suspect that he had fallen by the revenge of the Papists. Eighty years after his death, his grave near Luttrellstown was violated by the descendants of those whom he had betrayed, and his skull was broken to pieces with a pickaxe. The deadly hatred of which he was the object descended to his son and to his grandson, and unhappily nothing in the character either of his son or of his grandson tended to mitigate the feeling which the name of Luttrell excited. When the long procession had closed, it was found that about a thousand men had agreed to enter into William's service. About two thousand accepted passes from Ginkle and went quietly home. About eleven thousand returned with Sarsfield to the city. A few hours after the garrison had passed in review, the horse, who were encamped some miles from the town, were required to make their choice, and most of them volunteered for France. Sarsfield considered the troops who remained with him as under an irrevocable obligation to go abroad, and lest they should be tempted to retract their consent, he confined them within the ramparts, and ordered the gates to be shut and strongly guarded. Ginkle, though in his vexation he muttered some threats, seems to have felt that he could not justifiably interfere. But the precautions of the Irish general were far from being completely successful. It was by no means strange that a superstitious and excitable carn, with a sermon and a dram in his head, should be ready to promise whatever his priest required. Neither was it strange that, when he had slept off his liquor, and when anathemas were no longer ringing in his ears, he should feel painful misgivings. He had bound himself to go into exile, perhaps for life, beyond that dreary expanse of waters which impressed his rude mind with mysterious terror. His thoughts ran on all that he was to leave, on the well-known peat-stack and potato-ground, and on the mud-cabin which, humble as it was, was still his home. He was never again to see the familiar faces round the turf-fire, or to hear the familiar notes of the old Celtic songs. The ocean was to roll between him and the dwelling of his grey-headed parents, and his blooming sweetheart. Here were some who, unable to bear the misery of such a separation, and finding it impossible to pass the sentinels who watched the gates, sprang into the river and gained the opposite bank. The number of these daring swimmers, however, was not great, and the army would probably have been transported almost entire if it had remained at Limerick till the day of embarkation. But many of the vessels in which the voyage was to be performed lay at Cork, and it was necessary that Sarsfield should proceed thither with some of his best regiments. It was a march of not less than four days through a wild country. 
to prevent agile youths familiar with all the shifts of a vagrant and predatory life from stealing off to the bogs and woods under cover of the night was impossible indeed many soldiers had the audacity to run away by broad daylight before they were out of sight of limerick cathedral the royal regiment which had on the day of the review set so striking an example of fidelity to the cause of james dwindled from fourteen hundred men to five hundred before the last ships departed news came that those who had sailed by the first ships had been ungraciously received at brest they had been scantily fed they had been able to obtain neither pay nor clothing though winter was setting in they slept in the fields with no covering but the hedges many had been heard to say that it would have been far better to die in old ireland than to live in the inhospitable country to which they had been banished the effect of those reports was that hundreds who had long persisted in their intention of emigrating refused at the last moment to go on board threw down their arms and returned to their native villages sarsfield perceived that one chief cause of the desertion which was thinning his army was the natural unwillingness of the men to leave their families in a state of destitution cork and its neighbourhood were filled with the kindred of those who were going abroad great numbers of women many of them leading carrying suckling their infants covered all the roads which led to the place of embarkation the irish general apprehensive of the effect which the entreaties and lamentations of these poor creatures could not fail to produce put forth a proclamation in which he assured his soldiers that they should be permitted to carry their wives and families to france it would be injurious to the memory of so brave and loyal a gentleman to suppose that when he made this promise he meant to break it it is much more probable that he had formed an erroneous estimate of the number of those who would demand a passage and that he found himself when it was too late to alter his arrangements unable to keep his word after the soldiers had embarked room was found for the families of many but still there remained on the water-side a great multitude clamouring piteously to be taken on board as the last boats put off there was a rush into the surf some women caught hold of the ropes were dragged out of their depth clung till their fingers were cut through and perished in the waves the ships began to move a wild and terrible wail rose from the shore and excited unwonted compassion in hearts steeled by hatred of the irish race and of the romish faith even the stern cromwellian now at length after a desperate struggle of three years left the undisputed lord of the blood-stained and devastated island could not hear unmoved that bitter cry in which was poured forth all the rage and all the sorrow of a conquered nation the sails disappeared the emaciated and broken-hearted crowd of those whom a stroke more cruel than that of death had made widows and orphans dispersed to beg their way home through a wasted land or to lie down and die by the roadside of grief and hunger the exiles departed to learn in foreign camps that discipline without which natural courage is of small avail and to retrieve on distant fields of battle the honour which had been lost by a long series of defeats at home in ireland there was peace the domination of the colonists was absolute the native population was tranquil with the ghastly tranquillity of exhaustion and despair there were indeed outrages robberies fire-raisings assassinations but more than a century passed away without one general insurrection during that century two rebellions were raised in great britain by the adherents of the house of stuart but neither when the elder pretender was crowned at scone nor when the younger held his court at holyrood was the standard of that house set up in connacht or munster in seventeen forty five indeed when the highlanders were marching towards london the roman catholics of ireland were so quiet that the lord lieutenant could without the smallest risk send several regiments across st george's channel to recruit the army of the duke of cumberland nor was this submission the effect of content but of mere stupefaction and brokenness of heart the iron had entered into the soul the memory of past defeats the habit of daily enduring insult and oppression had cowed the spirit of the unhappy nation 
There were indeed Irish Roman Catholics of great ability, energy, and ambition, but they were to be found everywhere except in Ireland, at Versailles and at saint Ildefonso, in the armies of Frederick and in the armies of Maria Theresa. One exile became a marshal of France, another became prime minister of Spain. If he had stayed in his native land, he would have been regarded as an inferior by all the ignorant and worthless squireens who drank the glorious and immortal memory. In his palace at Madrid he had the pleasure of being assiduously courted by the ambassador of George the Second, and of bidding defiance in high terms to the ambassador of George the Third. Scattered over all Europe were to be found brave Irish generals, dexterous Irish diplomatists, Irish counts, Irish barons, Irish knights of St. Louis and of St. Leopold, of the White Eagle and of the Golden Fleece, who, if they had remained in the house of bondage, could not have been ensigns of marching regiments or freemen of petty corporations. These men, the natural chiefs of their race, having been withdrawn, what remained was utterly helpless and passive. A rising of the Irishry against the Englishry was no more to be apprehended than a rising of the women and children against the men. There were, indeed, in those days, fierce disputes between the mother country and the colony, but in those disputes the aboriginal population had no more interest than the Red Indians in the dispute between Old England and New England about the Stamp Act. The ruling few, even when in mutiny against the government, had no mercy for anything that looked like mutiny on the part of the subject many. None of those Roman patriots who poniarded Julius Caesar for aspiring to be a king would have had the smallest scruple about crucifying a whole school of gladiators for attempting to escape from the most odious and degrading of all kinds of servitude. None of those Virginian patriots who vindicated their separation from the British Empire by proclaiming it to be a self-evident truth that all men were endowed by the Creator with an unalienable right to liberty would have had the smallest scruple about shooting any negro slave who had laid claim to that unalienable right. And in the same manner the Protestant masters of Ireland, while ostentatiously professing the political doctrines of Locke and Sidney, held that a people who spoke the Celtic tongue and heard mass could have no concern in those doctrines. Molyneux questioned the supremacy of the English legislator. Swift assailed, with the keenest ridicule and invective, every part of the system of government. Lucas disquieted the administration of Lord Harrington. Boyle overthrew the administration of the Duke of Dorset. But neither Molyneux nor Swift, neither Lucas nor Boyle, ever thought of appealing to the native population. They would as soon have thought of appealing to the swine. At a later period, Henry Flood excited the dominant class to demand a parliamentary reform, and to use even revolutionary means for the purpose of obtaining that reform. But neither he, nor those who looked up to him as their chief, and who went close to the verge of treason at his bidding, would consent to admit the subject class to the smallest share of political power. The virtuous and accomplished Charmont, a Whig of the Whigs, passed a long life in contending for what he called the freedom of his country, but he voted against the law which gave the elective franchise to Roman Catholic freeholders, and he died fixed in the opinion that the Parliament House ought to be kept pure from Roman Catholic members. Indeed, during the century which followed the Revolution, the inclination of an English Protestant to trample on the Irishry was generally proportioned to the zeal which he professed for political liberty in the abstract. If he uttered any expression of compassion for the majority oppressed by the minority, he might be safely set down as a bigoted Tory and high churchman. All this time hatred, kept down by fear, festered in the hearts of the children of the soil. They were still the same people that had sprung to arms in 1641 at the call of O'Neill, and in 1689 at the call of Tyrconnell. To them every festival instituted by the state was a day of mourning, and every public trophy set up by the state was a memorial of shame. We have never known, and can but faintly conceive, the feelings of a nation doomed to see constantly in all its public places the monuments of its subjugation. 
Such monuments everywhere met the eye of the Irish Roman Catholics. In front of the Senate House of their country, they saw the statue of their conqueror. If they entered, they saw the walls tapestried with the defeats of their fathers. At length, after a hundred years of servitude, endured without one vigorous or combined struggle for emancipation, the French Revolution awakened a wild hope in the bosoms of the oppressed. Men who had inherited all the pretensions and all the passions of the Parliament which James had held at the King's Inn could not hear unmoved of the downfall of a wealthy established church, of the flight of a splendid aristocracy, of the confiscation of an immense territory. Old antipathies, which had never slumbered, were excited to new and terrible energy by the combination of stimulants which, in any other society, would have counteracted each other. The spirit of popery and the spirit of Jacobinism, irreconcilable antagonists everywhere else, were for once mingled in an unnatural and portentous union. Their joint influence produced the third and last rising up of the aboriginal population against the colony. The great-grandsons of the soldiers of Galmoy and Sarsfield were opposed to the great-grandsons of the soldiers of Wolseley and Mitchelburne. The Celt again looked impatiently for the sails which were to bring succour from Brest, and the Saxon was again backed by the whole power of England. Again the victory remained with the well-educated and well-organized minority. But happily the vanquished people found protection in a quarter from which they would once have had to expect nothing but implacable severity. By this time the philosophy of the eighteenth century had purified English Whiggism from that deep taint of intolerance which had been contracted during a long and close alliance with the Puritanism of the seventeenth century. Enlightened men had begun to feel that the arguments by which Milton and Locke, Tillotson and Burnett, had vindicated the rights of conscience, might be urged with not less force in favour of the Roman Catholic than in favour of the Independent or the Baptist. The great party which traces its descent through the exclusionists up to the roundheads continued during thirty years, in spite of royal frowns and popular clamours, to demand a share in all the benefits of our free constitution for those Irish papists whom the roundheads and the exclusionists had considered merely as beasts of chase or as beasts of burden. But it will be for some other historian to relate the vicissitudes of that great conflict and the late triumph of reason and humanity. Unhappily, such a historian will have to relate that the triumph won by such exertions and by such sacrifices was immediately followed by disappointment, that it proved far less easy to eradicate evil passions than to repeal evil laws, and that long after every trace of national and religious animosity had been obliterated from the statue brook, national and religious animosities continued to rankle in the bosoms of millions." May he be able also to relate that wisdom, justice, and time gradually did in Ireland what they had done in Scotland, and that all the races which inhabit the British Isles were at length indissolubly blended into one people. End of section 11 and end of chapter 17 of the History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Recording by Jen Raimundo.